Okay. All right. Let's bring it in. <laughs> I love this, actually. <laughs> but it's chattering and happy. This is good. Um, so yeah, we're uh, we're pleased to have uh, Steve Evans with us today um, for the for the colloquium. He's been here uh, since yesterday. He was participating in the archive, uh, the Ages Archive uh, series yesterday. Did a long interview, uh, contributed to that to that project. Um, I learned over dinner last night that Steve has a wealth of experience. I learned firsthand he has a wealth of experience going back 30 years uh, in, the, in the agricultural biotechnology, biotechnology space in general, uh, working with Dow, Mycogen. Uh, now he's doing uh, some private contracting and uh, really just a wealth of wisdom about a lot of the topics that are uh, you know, essential or at the core of what our center does. Um, he also has worked a lot with Simberg, the Synthetic Biology Engineering Research Consortium, Research Center, uh, funded by NSF. And I guess that's how uh, Todd and Todd Kukin and Jennifer Kuzma have interacted with them in the past, with colleagues with Fred. So, um, so Steve should be kind of an honorary member of GES, it sounds like to me from, from what I've heard. Uh, but we're delighted to have him, uh, really looking forward to uh, hearing what he has to say. Um, he said that the slide, so he has a lot of uh, information in the slides that he really wanted to, the students uh, to have access to. So one way or the other, we're going to make this, the slides available, at least to the students um, after the talk, uh, just for, for reference. Um, the other thing I told him last night is, uh, similarly to Phil's talk last week, given the, given the depth of experience and information that we could talk about, that he could talk about, um, that he's, he's uh, I gave him leeway to take between 30 and 45 minutes and we'll just see, we'll just see where that takes us in terms of the Q&A and everything. So with that, I'll hand it over and thanks for coming. And let me get you a clicker. Oh, you got it. Right. I'm uh, really glad to be here. My first time at NC State was with the GES component, so I just I feel like I'm home. Uh, doing that. What I'm going to spend some time doing, uh, and I might talk fast, is I'm going to take us through 40 years of ag biotech twice. Uh, and so I want to look at some of the things that happened uh, two different ways. Uh, the first question that I want to look at is how did something like recombinant DNA technology turn into seeds, turn into big data? So ag companies today are all about um, digital science, software, and robotics. How did that happen? Um, the second question that I want to look at is, well, what happened to recombinant microbes in ag? If you go back to the early 1980s and the mid-1980s in particular, there were tons of recombinant organisms that were getting ready to cross the threshold out of the lab and into the environment. What happened? Are they back in the term today uh, that you might see biologicals? So for this uh, overall talk, um, two themes that I'd like to um, emphasize are that some of the things that are current discussions, things that we're talking about today, have some clear predicates in history. And genetic technologies, as fun as they are, are usually not sufficient uh, to make a business uh, actually operate um, in this field. Um, a couple of observations that I have is that this concept of the ag biotech landscape, we talk about that. Uh, but it can have vastly different representations. You can look at the ag landscape from many different or through different, many different lenses. Um, over about a decade uh, time period, what I've observed is that the landscapes, um, they change because ag companies draw in 
uh, technologies that they need that are alive but maybe not historically tied to agriculture or to biotech. And so you see some strange bedfellows that um, develop over time. And then uh, thirdly, there's this idea that we imagine how fast biotech is, but the reality is timelines for biotech development are at least a decade long and usually more. And so one of the things that happens is that things cycle back and they show up now today as a new thing, but they might have had, again, a predicate or a close uh, cousin um, in the past. So this uh, is my particular uh, path through one uh, view of a landscape. This is seed company based. I started um, in the late 80s with a company called Mycogen. Uh, we were bought by Dow Alanco. Um, that then uh, Elanco left the oops Elanco left the um, uh, joint venture. We became just Dow AgroSciences. We stayed that way f uh, for about 20 years. Then a couple of years ago, Dow Chemical and Dupont merged to make Dow Dupont, and out of that arose Corteva AgroSciences as you know it today. Um, and then um, 11 months ago, I left Corteva to uh, form. Um, my little one-person uh, shop called Renove. Now this is seed company focused. This shows Mycogen Seeds. I didn't join Mycogen Seeds. I joined Mycogen as a tech company. Um, and so what I'd like to do is uh, remind you that Phil Howard was here last week talking about how seed companies uh, consolidated. So I'm going to build off of one of his slides. But the focus is not to follow seed companies, but how did seed companies turn into digital ag? Were there any drivers or predicates for that? So this is one of the uh, images that Phil showed. Um, the reason for 1996 is illustrated there because of two transgenic crops that were uh, developed and released by Monsanto at that time. The way the picture is shown, it's color-coded. So these orange images um, or the orange uh, figures are either chemical or pharmaceutical companies that dominate one aspect of the map. Um, by number alone, the blue companies are the seed companies, and that was his point, how did these things consolidate? Buried within it, there are a few little yellow companies. Those were the actual technology companies that were in place over the time. So the biotech part of, of, of ag biotech were represented by these little seed companies, or, or these little uh, yellow dots. I've got um, two that I'm going to call your attention to. Uh, one up here is called Calgene. Calgene introduced the first uh, transgenic crop in 1994, the so-called flavor saver tomato. And then down at the bottom, there's this line that says Zeneca and AstraZeneca. And what their importance will be, we're going to talk about briefly, they brought, through Zeneca, brought a transgenic product to the grocery shelf, um, a transgenic tomato paste based on the flavor saver tomato, uh, into the UK in 1996. And then AstraZeneca um, was involved in the Golden Rice Project in 2000. So we'll kind of come back and hit those briefly. Now, as um, Phil talked about, you can look at the way seed companies consolidated. And one of the big drivers, even though things were happening in the 80s um, and were accelerating through the 90s, um, in 1998, Monsanto dropped $4 billion into two companies. And that really catalyzed and crystallized uh, the consolidation um, of big uh, ag into uh, being seed companies. But 15 years later, they dropped a billion dollars into uh, something called Climate Corp. And they discussed Climate Corp as a play into big data. And so early that might have had some people scratching their heads. 
but it then was also one of the bellwethers for um, other companies that began moving into this software or digital space. So this is um, in 2017, uh, uh, DuPont Pioneer uh, bought Granular, which is a farm management software company. And then lastly, you can look at, um, um, lastly, you can look at uh, even equipment makers making a movement into machine learning when uh, John Deere uh, bought a company called uh, Blue River for their machine and vision technologies. So one of the questions that I want to address is, did anybody see, were there any predicates in history uh, that might indicate that uh, ag companies might want to move into a computation or digital space? So one of the places you can go look at that is from this obscure and now defunct um, body called the Office of Technology Assessment, which was uh, a, a division of, uh, of the U.S. Congress. Um, and in 1992, they wrote um, a very detailed report, The New Technological Era for American Agriculture. Um, as you would expect, at 1992, it had a lot of discussion about GM technology, but Chapter 4 of this um, document had an, a section on advanced computing technology. So you can see uh, from the image what computing would look like at that time. But what they identified clearly was that ag needed vastly more information that it had and vastly more decision support tools to do integrated crop management. So this is the reason that they did it. And even in 1992, the terms machine learning and artificial intelligence, which are all the buzz today, were identified as important components uh, for where ag needed to go. Um, I won't go and read all this, but some of the things that they also identified, if you're going to ask for all this information, you need a way to distribute it. And they uh, identified the progenitor of the Internet, ARPANET, uh, as being critical for ag development. They talked um, in detailed terms about where robotics might go in terms of sensor technology and machine vision. And then they even described this concept uh, in the future of an image-guided spot-spraying robot for infield control. Okay? It was that specifically stated within it. Um, just to show that their concepts around sensors were not just generic, oh, we need sensors. This is one of their tables. And you can see, again, lots of things, NIR, uh, and uh, infrared technology, spectral resistance, machine vision, all of these things were being discussed and worked on at some level in uh, the 1990s. And so if you're not familiar, you might know um, Blue River, but this is an example in 2011 of a Swiss company that has made an image-guided weed-detecting spot-spraying robot that you can uh, go look at for infield applications. Um, this obscure document wasn't the only place. Um, the journal California Agriculture had a nice cover image of the wired farm showing satellites interconnecting with all manner of equipment and uh, uh, representations of the uh, on-farm and value stream. Um, just last year, USDA NIFA began to contemplate um, what it would take as a computer infrastructure for ag to be taking the field phenotyping information, all of the remote sensing stuff, the genomics, proteomics, and jumping, uh, uh, jamming it into um, a data center that could then be used for crop development. So this is, uh, again, continuing to evolve. 
And so what you can end up with now is one view of an ag landscape that doesn't focus on seeds at all. This is a busy slide, but it shows all of the startups and small companies that are doing infield sensing, that are doing post-harvest disease management, on-farm crop manage, or, uh, management software, and then tools that are um, involved with the value chain um, for agriculture. And so if I reflect on this, um, one of the things that I want to take, or I took this path, was to show that the genetic uh, technologies are important, but products need something more than just genes, and business models need something more than just an interesting trait, if you're going to try to be a, a sustainable entity. Um, there did exist specific and actual information about the likely directions uh, that ag might take, but sometimes those uh, resided in silos that might not be um, in the space that practitioners would work. And ag technology today has a lot of stuff in it that isn't either obviously ag or obviously biotech. Um, this little cartoon was what the USDA put together to show this idea of the Swiss Army knife around the interdisciplinary needs uh, for ag data. Um, and I think, in my view, um, ag itself looks more like uh, this thing, where it does really pull in anything that it needs, anything it um, take together at the time uh, to make um, agriculture more productive um, or protect yields. Now, this is the GES series, so I want to start to dive into the genetically modified part. Um, some general themes that I want to think about is that optimism around technology outpaces its implementation. We get um, very hyped up about things uh, before they're uh, full. I like to describe the idea of ideas to industrial implementation, or I to I squared. It's something in the ag space, and the biotech space also, that are surprisingly long. And small, in air quotes, small decisions that are made during the development process, either by researchers, businesses, regulators, or stakeholders, often have a disproportionately consequential impact on whether something is uh, accepted or whether it might succeed. So things do matter um, early on. So to take this ride, we're going to now start at the end and work backwards to the 1980s. This is a more traditional representation of a plant biotech landscape. So things like gene editing, breeding, uh, traits there, the things that you would expect are there. But I want to call your attention to these really large bubbles, one called biostimulants slash biofertilizers, the other called biopesticides. So in the plant space, these two uh, product categories uh, that are extremely um, important for ag are areas that are dominated by microbes, um, and they often are called the biological space. Now, as an, uh, an institute that's very active in the development of biotechnology, you know how microbes have impacted ag. Uh, one of the things that I like to point out is that just about everything in our DNA technology and then genome and uh, gene and genome editing, all of those are um, founded on microbes, uh, enzymes derived from microbes. And so we wouldn't be having most of these discussions had those not been found. Now, the idea of patenting microbes in ag is not new. This is um, a document from 1896 that describes the inoculation of seed with a purely cultivated bacteria. And so patenting in ag for microbes goes back a long time. Um, 
Most of you should be familiar with um, the Supreme Court ruling on the Chakrabarty patents for live genetically modified organisms, describing the situations under which uh, a live GM product could obtain patent protection. And that was 1980. So one of the things that um, began to take root, this is a National Research Council study in 2000. What they observed is this class they called biologicals. Um, in the early 90s, 1991, began to take off in terms of new chemical actives that were moved in for pest control. And so on average, you can see that over time from 91 uh, to, to 1999, about half of the new chemical actives would have been called a biological. Part of the reason for that um, is that this chart looks at the time to develop something and the cost to develop something. And again, in uh, 2000, transgenic crops and chemical pesticides were estimated to be about similar in magnitude, but these biological entities had much lower costs and much shorter times to development. And so those have been historically a reason that you would want to pursue them. This is just a little more granular view of the technology. Um, and this looks at, again, applications of biological new pesticide ingredients over time. And from about 1995 on, what you see is a slope that finally uh, began to take. You see consistent introduction over time. This goes out to 2017. And then finally, I'm going to look <coughs> at this from the perspective of pesticide sales. So starting in 1993, going ahead, a little over 20 years, you see about a tenfold increase. So in 2016, biopesticides were about 5% of the market. There is data um, where people are forecasting 20 to 30 years out. Uh, so at that point in time, they're estimating, given a series of assumptions, that biologicals could account for 50% of the ag chemical market. So again, in another 20 years, about a 10x increase. So those are kind of the financials for why uh, these areas have interest. Now, I want to take a second thread. I want to go back to 1987. And the idea that I want to uh, introduce you to is how pervasive the optimism was for biotechnology. This is a National Academies study, um, and so you wouldn't think of those as being uh, prone to uh, over uh, irrational exuberance, but one of the first lines in the report was the power of biotechnology is no longer fantasy. They described how uh, biotech was going to impact crop production, uh, animals in agriculture, and bioprocessing with specific examples um, all the way through that. <coughs> At the same time frame, uh, in 1988, this Office of Technology Assessment again was looking at this transition. What was ready to leave the lab already in 1988 and go out uh, across that threshold into environmental release? And so this is table one. I'm just focusing on the microbes here. They had tables on plants um, and other uh, genetically modified entities. But I'm going to call your attention to three things that will be part of our talk. First, bacteria as pesticides, number one on the list, the isomynous bacteria related to frost damage in agricultural crops. Secondly, were genetically modified bacteria containing the uh, insecticidal toxin from Bt. And then thirdly, this category of plant symbionts, nitrogen-fixing bacteria. There are other things on the list, but these things were the, considered to be ready to go out the door, top of the list. 
this kind of to show you back where I was in the thick of things at this time. So this is a table of uh, recombinant organisms that uh, were going through the EPA FIFRA process, so pesticide-related um, environmental releases. And at the top of the list was this ice minus bacterium. So Steve Lindau at the University of California, Berkeley, um, and then a company, Advanced Genetic Systems, were taking those um, microorganisms out into the field. By 1987, mycogen was developing some sprayable biopesticides in which we had moved a gene into a pseudomonas, um, but our twist was, twist was that we were going to commercialize the dead recombinant strain for reasons that will uh, become apparent um, as we move forward. But so this uh, technology development, product development, was moving um, uh, along heavily at that point in time in the late 1980s and uh, mid, early to mid-1990s. Now I'm going to jump now back to this idea of the exuberance, and I'm going to focus for a little bit on something from the popular press. There was a very detailed article uh, in 1990 in the New York Times. And what it uh, spent a big chunk of its time doing is looking at the agricultural landscape as it was envisioned by Monsanto. And you can just read it. Things were going to happen that you didn't need pesticide uh, chemicals anymore. Um, Holsteins were going to produce more milk. Piglets were going to be making uh, lean and, fast and, meat, uh, and more meat faster. So this uh, aspect of animal production was key. Topsoil was going to be maintained, water was going to be pure, and the supermarkets were going to be full of products. That was the vision for uh, the 20th century, 21st century. Um, terms within this included words like fantastic. Friends of the Earth even had a pull quote that was supportive of the technology at the time. To show you the pace, so 1990, in 1992, every crop in the world would be easily manipulated. <laughs> Now, the article wasn't totally focused uh, uh, to be this positive. Uh, there was this um, allusion to genetic technology being something like a nuclear chain reaction. And then the remainder of the article began to talk about some of the societal issues, in particular this case around Monsanto desiring to release a genetically engineered bacterium with a Bt toxin in it. So in 1986, they were ready to do that. And we saw that being illustrated um, in that OTA document. But they shelved it. They had spent about $2 million uh, developing that technology, and they decided not to take it out. And what their statement was is that this issue reminded them of a bigger, earlier issue that they had around bovine somatotropin. And so you're going, oh, Monsanto, bovine somatotropin? I didn't know it. Um, the other thing is that this also taught them that they needed, and this is a direct quote, to help convince Monsanto of the need to sell uh, biotechnology to the American public. The ability to communicate in plain language to non-scientists hasn't been a fine art. And so if you look at just things like this, what you see is that 1986 was a significant component in time for releasing genetically engineered and, uh, microbes into the environment. There was a predicate. Both uh, bovine somatotrophin and porcine somatotrophin were actively being developed. Monsanto alone had spent $300 million in the development of bovine somatotrophin prior to what we consider uh, the ag biotechnology age. 
And so one of the things that we can see is that there is a non-obvious predicate that they had for thinking about biotech crops that had happened because of their experience with RBST. <coughs> and again, kind of fills out this idea that we needed to learn how to talk to each other, in particular talk to people outside of our field, had already been um, at least acknowledged uh, within Monsanto. Uh, kind of the last thing before we go on, the other thing that was evident even at that time, you can see many small biotech startups, um, those concentrated in agriculture had been forced to merge, sell out, or fail together. So this consolidation uh, kernel was already there in the 1990s, focusing specifically on the tech companies. Um, really, if you think about 1990, it was 10 to 15 years into the biotech revolution at that point in time and many of the companies, tech companies, had already been forced to, to change. One of the things that you can look at from the past, if you look at who the major players in biotechnology, in ag biotechnology that were listed in the article, you look at them and you go, I don't even know who they are. Or if you look at them and go, well, DuPont and Dow were mentioned, DuPont and Dow, as of last year, don't do ag biotech anymore. Right? So big companies have had a tough time lasting in the space for 30 years. So let's go back and let's talk about this ice minus thing. It was the first organism that went out. If you don't know what it was, um, it was a single gene, clean genetic deletion of one uh, uh, gene, a protein that coded for ice nucleation. Um, the way that it was constructed used recombinant DNA technology, but there were no vector parts, there were no other genetic elements, there were no markers, there were no transgenes in it. This was, a, in today's terms, this was a deletion. Um, without the gene, the organism no longer produced this outer membrane protein that corresponded to um, an ice nucleation focal point. So when it was on the leaf, if the protein was present um, by, uh, by the native strain, ice nucleation would happen and therefore frost damage uh, would occur. Um, and between this time, regulatory approvals had happened, but lawsuits ensued. And so the field releases had gotten delayed. In 1987, uh, they finally got through the last of that uh, legal issue in this case, and we had the first release of a GMO. And what I'm giving you are three different images of, in essence, the same trial. This was pulled together a couple of weeks apart. So this picture, the color picture, was from the UC Ag Archives. This is how work that uh, Steve Lindau did. Um, on one of their farms did in potato. The next two images were the um, more celebrated release spraying on strawberry. What's common to all three of these is that you see people spraying this recombinant organism in full protective gear. Suits, respirators, the whole thing. Um, in this image, you can see, well, it's there. You see this little tower. As you go to this next image, you can actually see in the strawberry fields a representation of that tower. It's not cropped so much uh, that you can't see other things. By the time it hit the New York Times, uh, the image is um, heavily cropped to focus on it, and you can see this little uh, cartoon thing that's kind of hard to see, but it's got something in it with a no and a circle on it. And so you can draw lots of conclusions uh, from how this might look, but this was the way the public was introduced to recombinant microorganisms. 
Now, what's the, the fly in the ointment? Some of the things that we need to keep in mind is that per EPA, some biologicals are pesticides. Okay, and this was considered a pesticide. The EPA considered uh, ice minus bacteria to be a pesticide because the way it mitigated frost damage was by competing with the ice plus organism, which they called a pest. So it's a pesticide. Um, other microbial systems can be pesticides. I'm going to call your attention to some other things that are pesticides, plant growth regulators that's going to come back to be important in a minute. But for this discussion, we're in a place where we're looking at a release of an organism controlled by FIFRA, the Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, Resenticide Act, that dealt with pesticides. So that's why they were in this full protective gear. Interestingly, the jumpsuit and the spray container has been preserved in the Smithsonian. This is a, a larger image of that thing that had the circle on it. What was the circle on it for? Well, you know, somebody was having fun. Ghostbusters was just two years or three years earlier than that, so let's have some fun with that. This is the caption from the science article. Although the protective garb she wears implies that the altered bacteria are hazardous, they're safe. But the law requires that you have this protective gear when you're doing something that is a pesticide. This is the reason that we at Mycogen were going out and figuring out how to release dead recombinants. Right? Because this, in essence, killed the ability to go release a live recombinant, at least pesticide, um, and have um, public um, acceptance uh, 1987. Now what happened to AGS to kind of close their story up? Like many of them, they were um, merged with another company. The company put the GM product on the back burner. A couple of years later they said, well let's just go out and find natural deletions, which they did. Um, and so DNAP was the company, did release uh, four different strains of native organisms under the Frostbane label. Um, this organism concept was moved into disease control with something called Blightman. The flip side of it, uh, because this protein is an ice nucleating thing, uh, if you've been skiing in Colorado, your artificial snow might have been made with Snowmax, which was a non-recombinant uh, form of this. And again, how did Snowmax come out to play? Well, Eastman Kodak was involved. Well, how's Kodak involved in biotech? That's what things were happening um, in this really fast-moving world of biotechnology um, in the 90s um, and early 2000s. So now, let's fast forward, and fast is in quotes. So here we were in 1987, we tried to release a genetically modified organism, we did, issues happened. And so um, much of the industry simply moved completely away. Um, now there's a nice little company out in California called Pivot Bio. Um, Pivot is now in their second year, I believe, of uh, product sales uh, around something called Proven, which is a microbe that is applied to corn that cuts down your fertilization needs. Uh, if you go look at their patent application from this time last year, clearly says these are genetically engineered bacterial strains. As you read through their document, at the beginning part, it's actually got an interesting uh, component of teaching, and the question is going to be what's intergeneric. What they say, many uh, industry players in the microbial arena are focused on creating intergeneric issues, but they have issues with regulation, they have issues with public perception, and there are currently no engineered microbes in the market that are non-intergeneric. So they're going to fill that niche. Well, what is 
intergeneric or non-intergeneric. That's a term of art that came about from a statutory document. So in 1997, the EPA under TOSCA, the Toxic Substances Control Act, said here's how we're going to regulate microbial products of biotechnology. And they used or introduced this term intergeneric, which basically means combining a deliberate combining of genetic material between organisms of different taxonomic genera. And you can go read everything you want to about it there. And so the idea here is that uh, something that's non-intergeneric then uh, might have DNA recombined in it, but it's not from a different taxonomic genera. And so that is one of the things for us to think about uh, that what Pivot might be doing. So if you go and say, well, how can you get a GM organism into open release? If it's not intergeneric and it's not a pesticide, that produces an avenue to the environment. So within Pivot's um, website, what they say is their organism isn't classified as a pesticide, it's classified as a soil amendment category. Back to that image we look like, biostimulants and biofertilizers, just last year, again, because of the growth in this area, EPA started trying to help companies uh, understand how you would look at label claims and therefore categorization for regulation of products in this space, which they said include biostimulants. So this is a place where it's been confusing. You could just say I'm a biostimulant. EPA is trying to say we're going to put some uh, bounds on that. And the important thing is, is that you're not a pesticide unless you're a plant growth regulator. The plant growth regulators are the statutory thing if you remember back to that earlier chart, you are a pesticide if you're a plant growth regulator. If you don't have a plant growth regulator mechanism, you won't be regulated, at least under that act, and their soil amendments are completely uh, identified. So proven technology from Pivot is working in that area. Um, what they're doing is moving genetic bits around uh, the organism itself, not taking parts from a different uh, genus and um, um, and transgenically implementing it. <clears throat> so if you said, well, let's do kind of a thought experiment. Let's go and say, I'd like to make a frostbane-like um, but engineered organism in 2020. How would I think through that? Is anything very different? So remember, they used RDNA technologies to create uh, a deletion. There were no added transgenes. Um, today, you could accomplish that lots of ways. Um, and you likely wouldn't fall um, under the MCAN, that document prior, because it's not intergeneric. However, no matter how you make it, if you have a pesticidal mechanism of action, you're going to fall under FIFRA. And so this is an example of one of those uh, native strains of frostban uh, that was still regulated. You can see the stamp of FIFRA right there. So what you would need to contemplate is if I want to do this, how could I think about a mechanism of regulating frost production on a leaf with an organism that doesn't involve a pesticidal action against the ice plus organism? So that takes us kind of uh, mostly full circle. What I'm going to do is take a couple of quick hits to go through some things that you might recognize or might not recognize, but that show this long historical predicate. I don't have time to elaborate a lot of these, but they'll be in the slide. So I mentioned this first one. Um, the University of Nottingham and Zeneca uh, were doing technology similar <clears throat> to what 
uh, or a, a similar approach to what was going on with Calgene. Calgene got uh, to a different place first, and so Zeneca began marketing in the United Kingdom a tomato paste based on that material. You can see it's clearly uh, labeled uh, made from genetically modified foods. They sold this from 96 to 99, about 1.8 uh, million cans of this product were sold. GM salmon, you've probably uh, heard about the Aqua Advantage salmon. Uh, it made a lot of news in the 2015, 16, 17 thing. Its product development was still all the way back to 1989. If you looked at that OTA report, uh, there were transgenic tilapia and transgenic salmon already being uh, developed in uh, prior to 1989. So it took a long time to get uh, this through the system. Um, I brought this one in just last night um, because there's been recent uh, news on golden rice. It received another regulatory approval. Uh, the university, or Washington University, has also done an interesting study on uh, potential farmer adoption, and that's where this press release is from. I want to call you back to 2000, though. And so AstraZeneca, remember we started with Zeneca, it became AstraZeneca, uh, a giant pharmaceutical company. But in 2000, they said, we're going to jump in and we're going to be the entity that will provide this transgenic product uh, to the world. Uh, and by the way, uh, we think it'll be ready in three years. Um, a couple of things at the end right now, phage is recurring. Um, this is an interesting article that describes uh, how synthetic biology is going to enable phage. I like this because it takes a phage over here, takes it to the design-build test cycle, and then um, if you see it, it's going to impact um, a variety of products. Phage are also being um, used in uh, some animal or some human and animal health um, arenas. Um, this uh, quote from a group at the University of Texas I think is interesting. Uh, phage therapy. Uh, they're not as new as you would think. They had a historical precedent a hundred years ago, and the important thing to look at is for this particular technology space, what drove its R&D into the basement was the development of commercially viable antibiotics. And so by the 1970s, funding to go in and study even the basic biology of phages had dried up for a while. And so now we have a period of time where this has now recurred, and I'd say that's some of the same things that happen with questions around uh, dissemination of transgenes and microbes. 1987 basically was a milestone component that caused a lot of the funding and interest in that um, to, to dry up. Um, lastly, just to show something a little odd, um, we talked about biosensors. Um, landmine detection has been a long-term interest in biosensors. A group in Israel in 2017 um, had a good article uh, describing a GFP-based biosensor that they were able to uh, develop and do a small field test on. However, in 1997, Lockheed had already developed and patented a GFP-based biosensor. Um, I like this particular illustration from their patent because it shows this genetic system being deployed by um, a biplane. And then some poor person was going to walk through the field with a flashlight. Uh, so think about that. There's confidence in your technology. Um, I'm going to close this by coming full circle back to GM Frost. Uh, the IGM competition, if you're uh, not familiar with it, go. It'll, it'll make your heart sing. It's a really great place. In 2017, a team from France said, we want to go and rethink IGM, we've, our, uh, uh, frost protection, and even heat protection. 
And so what uh, they did was produce a very nice background uh, set of documents on it. It's one of the most complete places that I've seen uh, to go look at uh, the IGM story. And this line I thought was great. The author of this report you are currently reading was not born at this time. And so I decided to go connect with Steve Lindau. And so that's one of the things that happened. Even though it was 1987, you've got a new cadre of scientists that weren't available at the time, or they weren't born even at uh, a time of some significant things. So my conclusions for now, what I would say, technology changes faster than the products. Tech enthusiasm uh, seems to hit some sort of a reality wall, and my experience has been about five years after uh, the initial release. Um, <clears throat> product cycles can still be decades long, even though you might speed up the front end. One of the twists of that is pure technology companies usually can't hold on for 10 years. It becomes very challenging to do that. Um, one of the other things to think about is some of the pioneering researchers in this field are aging out. If you were a PI, a mid-career PI, and you were able to go to the Asilomar conference on RDNA technology, uh, you're now over 80. Um, and then if you're under 33, you weren't even born when the ice minus uh, uh, release happened. Now, there's a lot of information about what the future of ag might look like out there, but sometimes it's in hard-to-find places. Um, I don't think that we have um, fully implemented our effective communication strategies as scientists or as company individuals uh, with society, still some work. Um, and then finally, if you think what you're working on is brand new, um, go find someone who's been working in the field about 20 years and buy them a cup of coffee. Um, you might find some things uh, that are different. Uh, so I'll stop here. Thank you for your patience as I uh, spent through this. So one of the things we talk about here at the GES Center a lot is responsible innovation. So not just in terms of safety, but in terms of inclusive deliberation about what paths forward for technology are desirable and undesirable. And I was curious, um, given your vast experience in industry, um, and as we're thinking about what's needed at a societal level to, to achieve responsible innovation, what have you found that industry is bad at? One of the challenges that you have in this full development of a product is that you've got to go from some kind of idea through a bunch of stuff that doesn't work to get to a point where you can actually make and sell a product. So what are companies not really good at? Companies are not good at fundamental basic research, at least as they're constituted today. They might do things that, that are further this way, but pure basic research is the purview, and should be the purview, of public institutions, universities, and other foundations like that. The challenge that you have, so, uh, so industry might be pushed to um, support that earlier, but it's not really good at that. Um, and this, this uncomfortable area where, where you've got an idea, it sort of works, it might work great in the lab, uh, it might work great in one location in your lab, but getting that to then work in a larger area or meet all of the customer needs that are uh, anticipated for product. That's where uh, industry um, is better. Universities aren't most uh, adept at doing that. Um, but this whole concept of this funding the valley of death uh, arena is, I'd say, where things um, are challenging because 
you might have a technology that moves across here uh, because of hype, right? It's a really cool thing. Everybody wants to do it. You might throw a lot of money. It might not be the best idea, but it's the thing everybody's talking about. And so I'd say those uh, kinds of trade-offs um, in terms of how do you get funding to do this uh, versus how do you uh, develop, uh, to me, that's one of the challenges. When you were talking about uh, the non-pesticidal uh, biological, um, the, the way you uh, presented it, saying that not being pesticidal provided it a path to market, made it almost seem like, um, at the moment, going through the regulatory process is so prohibitive that companies are basically just trying to avoid it at all costs. Um, so my first question is, did, did I sort of get that impression right? And then, in terms of Adam's question, you know, is that, in a sense, a barrier to responsible and or better innovation if the formal mechanisms are just scaring people off? So it's, it's an interesting question. It's been a question that's actually de been debated for uh, a number of years in innovation theory. Um, I like the word avoid, and I'm going to focus on that for just a moment, because I think it's, it's an important but loaded word. So if you come in and say, well, what's one of the uh, current examples of that? Uh, if you look at the AMI-regulated process for USDA, um, one of the early uh, entities that moved there said, look, the regulations say A, B, and C. I'm not doing A, I'm not doing B, I'm not doing C. How you view that, the lens through which you look at that, uh, is colored by your perceptions around regulatory authority and what you're doing. Are they avoiding regulation? That's how some people would play it. Or are they simply not doing the things that would cause that particular regulatory authority uh, to have impact? And those, those are very fine distinctions, but they get, I think, to me, heavily uh, towards values and perceptions. Um, and how you think about what a regulatory agency should do, how you think about what a developer should do. So simply not doing something doesn't necessarily mean you're avoiding it. Um, what I would say overall um, is that be, the way I think about it is our regulatory language uh, was written to contemplate things that were um, further back in our technology cycle than where we are today. And so um, it doesn't mean that the regulations don't cover it. It just means that the terms, if you go look at the uh, early terms, you talked about cell fusion a lot and splicing. People don't splice and they don't self-fuse in any of those sense. So if you're not doing that, are you avoiding regulation? I mean, that becomes the question uh, today. Um, the barrier, uh, the unpredictability of regulation is one hurdle. Again, if you think about timelines being 20 years from now, the other hurdle is I don't necessarily know what the environment will look like, what public sentiment will look like, what the needs might even be 15 to 20 years down the road. All of those conspire to say I might take a development approach that could look conservative to someone on the outside. Uh, I do like something, I, I had it in the thing uh, that uh, Phil Howard did, he said the other way you could look at it though is that if you get to a company of a certain size, you develop this organizational chart that had the VP of no. Um, and so there is a place where you can look at innovation killing inside large companies. Um, 
again, depending on how you look at it. Do, do you have a particular suggestion or something you'd like to see in <coughs> the regulatory system that sort of might mesh better with the types of ideas that get generated further down in the companies? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a cheat in one sense. So uh, Jennifer Kuzma and I were on a National Academy study uh, panel uh, published in 2016, um, an overview of what the future of regulatory needed to look like across. It wasn't just focused on ag. It said, let's look at the coordinated framework. President Obama at that time had uh, caused a number of initiatives to come into place to look at, do we need to revise the coordinated framework? Um, I would say that those results are a good place to start. The outcome of that report, um, I think, should be given um, attention in terms of both policy um, and in perception. Um, and so it's, there are aspects of simplification that are important, uh, but then also aspects of um, how companies would interact with the system uh, in terms of data availability and other things like that. So it's a good read. Um, around that question, I would say. So, <clears throat> my perception is that the the regulatory landscape is very um, uh, combative, or um, and so what what I often feel like I see is that there's you know complaints about how expensive it is to bring products to market, and there's the you know, let's avoid the expensive parts of regulation or let's not do the things that get regulated. But I rarely hear proponents of biotech saying, this is what this this is what sufficient safety testing would look like. These are the kinds of rules that would be good for us to be under. In your experience, have, have you heard either publicly or in smaller groups, um, people who want biotech to move through the system arguing, yeah, this, this, these, this coordinated framework isn't working for us, it's too expensive, the language is bad, it's inappropriate, but here are the appropriate kinds of regulations that would be good for our technology. Oh, I think it's a great question. I, I'd say, obviously, I think about that, right? And you can get into places. If I had a magic wand, some things that I would, would think about are, are this. And I'm going to frame this from the perspective of, uh, I'm going to use synthetic biology terms, bringing new chassis into. So we've got this uh, idea that we need uh, more microorganisms uh, that have different properties. Well, no matter where you do through that MCAN process, um, microbial products of biotechnology, um, you're going to, in some way, potentially get caught um, needing to talk to the EPA, okay? Um, and if, depending on the end use of your product, um, you could be talking to other agencies. But let's just pretend you're going to go talk um, to the EPA. Um, it discusses things like uh, questions around safety, and it asks for literature citations. It asks for data around safety. So one of the things that I, and then there's a list of about a dozen organisms uh, that are exempted because they have a long history of prior use and prior safety. So how do you get, if you've got and said, I'm going to go take an advanced lab and I'm going to make 12 new chassis, how do you get the equivalent of 30 or 40 years uh, of safety um, in what reasonable time to say I would take that new chassis through the regulatory issue. I think those are legitimate questions that you could get people in the room and discuss. So what does it mean to do a safety assessment? A lot of how safety assessment was done, even on microbes, was by 
by borrowing prior technologies. The image that we had of the ice minus, you know, the, the suit was there because of a category. If you sat and really thought through that, okay, was that an appropriate thing? In hindsight, you can ask that question. When you were in the thick of it, I don't know that it, it was viewed as being the issue that it became, right? Um, and so I think we have that opportunity today. Now, how do you develop safety questions and safety technology? I think that's a big role then. If you look at national labs, uh, things like NIST um, is trying to uh, help develop standards on how you look at and describe microbes, microbiomes, and other things, uh, in part from their work um, around DNA. Because right? you go in and say, well, I've got a DNA sequencer. I know it works. How do you know it works? Uh, and they made standards for quality um, in in, in DNA analysis. So I think we need standards. I think those standards can't come from private companies, at least initially. Somebody could contract to make them eventually. But so standards and testing, I think needs to be moved to a different place. And on this chart, maybe uh, that exists here. Maybe that becomes something uh, that's uh, open to debate, open to community uh, development. Um, it's not necessarily uh, a robust discussion that's going on right now. That would be one example. Just curious about Steve Linda. Mm -hmm. um, two things. You know, one is, well, it would have been possible for him to have come up with an ice minus without using genetic engineering. Mm -hmm. And sort of the question of why did he do that? But looking at what he's doing now, is he just sort of like totally left that for so long after that was over? I, I you said he talked to him. I'm just curious about what Oh, the, the students talked to him. So the students oh, oh, called so up and yeah. talked to him. I haven't he's, he is still at Berkeley, yeah. still doing research, but mostly basic research. Yeah. Sure but anyway, so, yeah. so the first question, though, do you know why he did Why didn't he just find a natural? Uh, well, he actually did. Um, so one of the things that you can go look at in the archive, um, you can, there were a number of natural deletions. That's where DNAP ultimately went back to get it. And so you could get to the, what their argument was, um, was that they felt that it was important to have a, we'll just call it an isogenic line, a clean deletion, so that anything else that had happened, because you could do transposon deletions, you could do a bunch of other things, or just find the native entity um, out there. So they mapped a lot of organisms. The, 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 the ability to go find that gene and partly uh, came through uh, some positive work. But fortunately, you could transfer that to E. coli, and E. coli would then nucleate I, so you had a positive screen, um, and then you had some negative genomic screens for those deletions. So there was a lot of work, a lot of fundamental work, and then a lot of field trials that were actually done, but ultimately, you still would be a pesticide. Yeah, and but, so, but the thing is, I mean, do you think that his strain that was genetically engineered was better than what they found because he did it so much cleaner? So there are a few papers, they're in more obscure, they're behind paywalls for me, they're a little bit harder to get. Um, so they did look at some of the things. If you go back and look at those towers, there were lots of questions about spread, and so they were trying to do soil and air monitoring. Um, and so one of the questions of better is, does it spread more, does it survive longer? And so they were trying to actually collect data that would answer that question. They're recorded some places. They're not as hard to get. I think, that, I, just, I think that what he found was that it was at least as good. It could survive and compete uh, as well. Uh, relative to the ICE Plus, 
I don't know then in the uh, direct comparison with the uh, native. If it was better. Don't know. Uh, thank you for your talk. Um, so I was wondering for the public communication as you show the example of the New York Times. Um, so in my perception, we have a lot of issues with this like, public communication of uh, agriculture products today. Um, we had last year in Brazil a commercial going on um, for kids, like a cartoon showing uh, people eating transgenics or uh, food sprayed with pesticides and people dying or having mutations in their body. And like, the New York Times is other example, like uh, trying to portray the, the worst case scenario. Uh, from your opinion, uh, why, what is the interest of this media on portraying kind of like one side or um, how can we fix that, if we can ever fix that? Uh, so, so I'm not a media person and what I will do, is, and I'll also try not to make a political statement, I'm not going to argue that media exists to drive a narrative. You could have people that would do that. I think uh, something that does sell the newspaper, though, is conflict. And so at that point in time, how genetically engineered organisms would be regulated, what they would do with the environment. Again, you know, that, that spray was just 10 years past the Silomar uh, in one sense. And so when you have something new, a technology like that, um, beginning to uh, take a look at and then try to uh, let's say just cast a wide net, I'm going to say they at least did that. They talked to a lot of people, they had Friends of the Earth, they had Jeremy Rifkin, they had Bob. So they at least talked to some individuals trying to put a story up, okay, um, uh, on the 1990 article. Now by the time we got to the spray itself, I don't know, right? Uh, I don't know if there was an agenda that was pushed. The, the cropping of the picture to me is just interesting. Uh, and you know, it was a lot of picture and a few words. Um, so could there have been a different editorial decision um, or, or were, I don't know. So I don't know how to think about that. Um, I do think that though that, that places where we can have dialogue, newspapers still don't give dialogue. I mean, somebody could write an editorial back in response. Um, finding places where we can get together and talk about the technology, uh, I think is in, important. There are lots of activities, um, the BioBuilder program uh, that basically helps teach uh, aspects of biological engineering uh, into the uh, high school and elementary areas. I think it's really cool. There's some stuff coming out of Northwestern using in vitro uh, transcription translation kits that have been freeze-dried. Uh, they're like bio-legos. Um, and so there are lots of things now where um, students at high school and uh, younger can get their hands on biology and begin to play with it, I think that's going to change uh, the dialogue uh, at least in 10 years. All right. Thanks. Thanks.